Hello and welcome to the June edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave and a little later on I will be speaking to Jemima Jarman from the Jewish Museum about a rather fascinating new exhibition they have celebrating great British Jews. And I'm Tony Honigberg. I'm going to be talking to Ashley Blaker about his up-and-coming show at JW3 on the 24th and 25th of June called Profit Sharing that he does with another comedian called Imran Youssef. And I'm Clive Roslin and I shall later on be talking to Judy Jackson about her new book which is called Episodes, Two Girls, Two Lives one time. It's a fascinating book. We'll also be hearing from Terry Benson, one of the co-founding members of the Borenwood and Elstree Liberal Synagogue, about how the community plan to celebrate their 50th anniversary. And as if all of that isn't enough, our rabbinic thought for the month will come from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. But first, with a roundup of the main Jewish news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. In Ireland, parliamentarians are being warned that there could be massive losses if they approve a bill that criminalises trade with Jewish settlements in the West Bank. The warning came from the Ireland-Israel Alliance. The bill is currently being scrutinised by the Select Committee of the Irish Parliament for Foreign Affairs, which could mean, amongst other things, that major names might relocate their operations out of Ireland. The Jewish community has been reacting to the Equalities Watchdog's launching of a full investigation into anti-Semitism within the Labour Party. It's only the second time the EHRC has looked into a political party, the other being the BNP. The announcement prompted strong reactions from Jewish Labour MPs, including Margaret Hodge, who said it was unforgivable that Jeremy Corbyn had led the party down that path. Lance Foreman has been elected a Brexit Party MEP for London. The Jewish smoked salmon firm owner was one of many successes for Nigel Farage's new party. Mr Foreman said that on the election trail he came across many Remain voters who said they were supporting the Brexit Party, which won 29 of the UK's 73 seats in the European Parliament, pushing Labour into third place and the Conservatives into fifth. Israel is set to go to the polls again after the Prime Minister failed to form a coalition. Benjamin Netanyahu dissolved the Knesset after he couldn't heal the divisions between his potential coalition partners over a law setting quotas to draft yeshiva students into the Israel Defence Force. It's the first time an Israeli election has not resulted in a government. And finally, a JCOS student was amongst the finalists on this year's Britain's Got Talent – Josh Hennes, who's 17 and from Cockfosters, was part of a group of young magicians called 4MG, who impressed the judges, including Simon Cowell. He said he'd never seen an act like theirs before. Josh has been performing magic since he was seven. And for my next trick, I'll simply say that's our roundup of the news. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I think we should start off with, I believe, a topic that has actually been on most people's lips over the past month. And, of course, it was the Eurovision Song Contest last month took place in Tel Aviv. I should know I was there and jolly good fun it was as well. But except it was fun for most of us. And yet, unfortunately, I suppose one could argue it was almost inevitable, but it turned a little bit sour at one point towards the end Mm. through a rather tasteless stunt by the Icelandic entry. I don't know whether or not either of you saw it, but in case anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, during the results being announced and there was an image of the Icelandic group, they decided to hold up Palestinian flags. I did not notice that. I don't know if I'd stopped watching because I stopped watching about... Oh, three quarters of the way through, so I must have missed it somehow. Yeah, this was this was nearer yeah. towards the end, so I, you probably did miss it. I did see it, and it... it I mean, I must say, that whoever the was doing the camera work or the producer director was very quick oh, yes. it showed a quick image and then it was gone and I, I wondered what it was until I read the next day it was the Icelandic team it was, it was during the end when they were announcing the scores to anyone who doesn't watch Eurovision I apologise oh, this I might it. not be terribly interesting for you it. but right at the end when they're announcing the scores and it was Iceland's turn to receive some points and what happened was is that it was i think they were just announcing that iceland had scored a total of x number Mm. of points and when they panned in on the icelandic act they decided to hold up 
Palestinian flags in protest. Now that raises a couple of issues, because first and foremost, Eurovision Song Contest, as so many people have said, and quite rightly so, is apolitical. Mm. That is the whole idea behind it. The actual founding of the Eurovision was to actually bring people closer together and try and find some common ground. And it seems very, very ill and mean-spirited to try and shatter that, doesn't it? Also, the other thing there is that the Icelandic group had spent the whole week in Israel. Uh, presumably, they never ever went to the what is now called the Palestinian territories. But they spent all week in Israel living it up and enjoying themselves. And also the other thing as well that I find absolutely extraordinary is to anyone who is unfamiliar with the Icelandic entry, the name of which conveniently escapes me, and frankly, I don't think they deserve any more publicity anyway. They are very much about LGBTQ plus mm. rights and human rights. And that is what they were protesting about. That's the reason why they're holding up the flags, allegedly. And what I find quite extraordinary is if you would see the peculiar outfits that they had decided to don as part of their act, I say give them five minutes in the Gaza Strip and see whether or not they live to tell the tale. Yeah, absolutely. The question is, how did the... Because Israel's... Uh, very good at finding people holding things like a Palestinian flag. How did they manage to get the Palestinian flag into the place? Presumably hidden in their outfits, I don't know. Yeah, it must have been. I mean, if you actually were to see, the flags themselves took the shape of scarves. Mm. So they were less about the the proper full-size flag that you'd usually see held up at a Eurovision Song Contest. It was a smaller scarf size, so one can only assume they had them concealed about their person. But I just believe personally, and I'm sorry, I know I'm not normally encouraged to have an opinion, but it just felt really wrong that at the end of what had actually been a really good production, it was a great atmosphere. As I mentioned a little earlier on, I was lucky enough to be in Tel Aviv for the Eurovision this year. And it was such a fun atmosphere as we were sitting on Tel Aviv Beach, there's a whole load of us watching and all watching on a big screen and Out just of curiosity, flopped. how you were there before the actual uh, Eurovision Song Contest night? What was the atmosphere like uh, beforehand? Fantastic, absolutely, and amazing. everybody getting on well with each other. Absolutely, it was. I have never seen Tel Aviv so full of people who clearly weren't of a Jewish background. And I don't mean that because obviously Israel is a very multicultural country to anyone who's never been there before. But this was very clearly not a case of just the typical religions you get in Tel Aviv. This was different nationalities all over Tel Aviv. And you could just see the look on people's faces. They had no idea that Israel was as great as it actually is. Certainly not Tel Aviv was as great as it is. And it just seems so unbelievable that such an anticlimax, such a I'm trying to think of words big enough to describe how it smacked the atmosphere mm. down as soon as that happened. Because you just felt this wave come over. It was almost as if Israel was just accepted up until that point for the great country it is. And then, bang, they had to go and ruin it. And it just seems terrible. That's extremely sad, in fact. It is very sad That's indeed. Awful. Well, look, the only good yeah. thing is, is that we have been told in no uncertain terms by the governing body of Eurovision that there will be consequences for Iceland as a result of that action. It'd be very interesting to see what happens. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. And I'm talking today to someone I've known for quite a long time and a good friend of mine, Ashley Blaker. How are you? I'm good, Tony. We're you, good friends. We are oh, good. You well, are, I, just, we, I uh, think we're good friends. Yes, we are. Yes. Well, I'm, you must live near me because I often see you wandering past my house. I live around you, the, just around the corner. Do you me. either live around the corner or you're a stalker? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping it's that you uh, live around the corner. Well, <laughs> I thought you were hoping I was a stalker. <laughs> I say it's the latter, personally. <laughs> <laughs> I already have enough of them, but it's fine. I, uh, I know, I bet you do too. And now, you're, you're very, very busy, of course, and you... I know you've been to America several times recently, but yeah. you've just come back from Australia. Uh, well, no, I, well, I was based in America actually for seven months. Yeah. So um, I had a problem with a stalker, so I had to get away, you see. It wasn't New York. It wasn't you. No, it wasn't. No, so I've been in New York for seven months, but I'm based there. But yes, I went actually to Australia during that time as well. Did shows in Sydney, Melbourne and Perth. Yeah, and I, yeah, it was ha- handy actually because as luck would have it, I had a show in Seattle, so I was kind of able to go the other way. Right. The quicker way. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> get, the ba- I went around the back. Get, get rid yeah. of the jet lag. <laughs> yeah, it's slightly yeah. easier, isn't it? Well, it's a shorter trip. Yeah. What, 
How did you go down in Australia? I mean, oh, it was great. It was just great. It was, oh no, uh, yeah, it was great. I mean, look, all all the shows, thank God, have been have been great so far. But Australians, the Australians are actually more similar to the British than mm. the Americans are, and they're quite. A, they've got a very bawdy sense of humour there as well. Even the most religious, in fact, like you know, you can imagine. I think everybody's grown up on Paul Hogan and yeah. Call, go to a Brit in Australia, and they will. All, even the baby will go. Call that a knife. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it's it's it's. Um, I wish I'd said that on stage. Now I just thought of that. <laughs> do you want a piece of paper write that down? No, I should have do next time I go to Australia. No, so it's great. I, I loved it, and it was yeah, it was a really fun trip. I was there ten days. I got the I got the obligatory photo with a kangaroo and a koala bear. Right. One question comes to mind before we go and talk about what you're doing here at JW3. One question comes to mind when you're performing in front of audiences. Not all your audiences are Jewish. Yeah. How do you go down with the non-Jewish audiences? Because we've had Jewish comedians, oh, okay, okay. but we haven't well, had from Jewish yeah, yeah, yeah. comedians. So that's what that that question is is actually, I suppose, relevant to this new tour because you know it's always important to know what audience you're performing for. So I've done shows in the UK that have been very much for a Jewish audience, advertised to a Jewish audience. I would assume the audience that turned up were probably ninety-nine point nine percent Jewish. You go to America, you, you've got to know that you're performing for an American crowd, you've got to rewrite a whole show because Americans, not just their sense of humour, is slightly different. Language, totally different. References, totally different. It's actually incredible. You know, it's not just the obvious ones, your sidewalk and diapers and faucet, but, like, I'm not joking, like, every sentence has got a different, different words in it, different references. I genuinely have material that I've got three different versions of. A version for Jews, a version for Gentiles, and a version for Americans. Americans yeah. I've got like, I've got three different punchlines, you know, honestly. So anyway, so this show, this the, the show that I'm touring at the moment with Imran Yusuf, which is yes. which is coming to JW Thrill, though too late to buy tickets because uh, it's a month away and both nights are already sold out. But I'll, That's a good I thing. can plug the extra London dates we've added in a little bit. Please but, do. yeah, so that show is for a mixed crowd. So, yeah, so, you know, I don't talk about shul. I would mention a synagogue and everything is explained. Everything is to that level that everyone can enjoy it. But, I, yeah, it's been great so far because I've actually been playing for really mixed crowds and some nights have been more Jewish and some nights have been less Jewish and, and the same material works. Because so we should say that Imran Yusuf, of course, is Muslim. So. Imran Yusuf, as, as his name might suggest, is, is uh, Muslim. And so we've done... This show's a bit like... If you're a, fo- you're a football fan, Tony? Not particularly. Not, not particularly but you know, in, so you know in European football, you play like home and away matches, yeah. right? So this tour's a bit like that because we, we played Radlett. We did two nights at the Radlett Centre last week and two sold-out nights, 300 each night. And that is, like for me, that was like the home match. Mm. So for Imran, that's his away match, you know? Yes. And then we're going to Bradford next week. Oh, that's a, an away that, match that's for you. very much the away match, you know? Yeah. I imagine I'll be the only Jew in the room, and, you know, that's great, and I love that. It's That's the fun I know, of I know one or two Jews in Bradford, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Great. I'll, I'll yeah. send them my way. How do you go down in front of a Muslim audience? Um, I, it, the thing is, it's not a question like a Muslim. I mean, a mixed audience. This show is for it's everybody. So it's it's. So the thing with this show is what's. And I lo- I really I'm really enjoying doing the show. I'm kind of, as you can tell, kind of full of enthusiasm at the moment. For it. So we do, we have a first half where I do about forty five minutes or so. Uh, then we have a interval. Then then uh, Imran does a, a bit and then we perform together for half an hour right. on stage at the same time and, and that's great and we and that's really like completely ad-libbed improvised we have questions from the audience questionnaires the mm. audience are given questionnaires and they come in three questions and I won't spoil what they are but they fill them in that we, we collect them at the start of the show and then we do the second half is based off those questions right and it's worked it's what I, the joy of it for me is not just perform with Imran we get on very well together we have a good laugh but it's just uh, not knowing what's coming I really improvising I love trying new stuff the whole time yeah I must say tell everybody that it's actually called profit sharing P-R-O-P-H-E-T yes because and, and presumably you talk about the profits and the um, ones Imran that are linked. Actually. Imran does a lot, actually. Ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. It's both. The, both of us are performing, uh, uh, like telling our story. That's really what the uh, bits on our own are. Tell, I tell my story of where I came from, who I became, mm-hmm. have you, what it's done to my life, uh, and look what it's done to your life. Yes, actually. look what it's done. Well, I mean, the, yeah, that sounds incredibly 
dry as I say it, but uh, <laughs> no, well I know, it, I know. It, I it, it is a funny, it is a funny forty-five minutes. That's all new. It's like new material, so it's mm. it's new. It's not like if you see me on other shows, it's not it's not that material. And Imran talks about it, but Imran actually does talk quite a lot about Abraham and visiting the uh, graves in in uh, Hebron and what have you. That that that's almost like you've taken a step back from the religious side of it, and he's taken a step um, forward. To well, it. I don't know. Look, at, you you talk about what you're interested in, you know, and that's yeah. How did you two meet? Well, I've actually booked him on several shows when I was a producer for years in TV and radio. Right. I booked him on different shows, but we are both big supporters of the same football team, which I should say, clarify if you didn't know, is Liverpool. Yeah, the Jewish Telegraph in Manchester. Never believe anything you read in the newspaper because they said that we're both supporters of Arsenal. And I was threatening to sue. I've never been so <laughs> offended in all my life. I've read a lot of rubbish written about me uh, in newspapers, but and, uh, never, that's the biggest. never as bad as that. <laughs> I was livid. So the show is here uh, on the 24th and 25th. That's right. And you say this one's sold out. Whereabouts yeah. are you playing the, uh, then so in we London? Just, uh, the only on. other London date. So we just added... Monday, the seventeenth of June, at the Arts Depot in Finchley. Yeah, okay. and that's just gone on sale. So, and then it's gone. It's gone. Yeah. I mean, in other kind of more Jewish areas, we're we're in Leeds in early June. I think it's the fourteenth. I think off the top of my head, the thirteenth. Can't remember at the Carriage Works, and then on Sunday, the the night before the Arts Depot show, Sunday the sixteenth of June, we're at the Lowry. In Manchester, right. oh, no, in Salford. Salford, oh yes, yeah. Lowry, Lowry get, don't they say get, Manchester. They, they get a bit they, upset. They don't do. They? That's right. They do get upset if you say that. Yeah, it's, it is Salford. Yeah. Now you, you always appear to me because I, I know you, you're rarely at home and you're always on the move and going around. Do you ever stop? Well, it's, is it a bit like Bob Dylan's World no, Tour? You, you know? Yeah. No, you do. You, the thing is, if you stop, I think it's not good for you. Certainly, no. as a comedian, firstly, I think you've got to just keep performing because it just makes you a better performer. You know, to just I, I like being on stage, and even if you know, even if it's not the, you know, even if you weren't performing for the biggest crowd or earning the most money, I just think to be performing every night is is important when when you're doing properly. I don't really do a lot of like, I don't really do club. I don't. I'm not one of those comedians you'll see in a club. club I'm not no. doing like. 10 minute quarter of an hour slots here and there I like doing full length hour you want a, a night show plus. yeah but it's great to do it. I, I want to keep doing it and secondly I just think it's important because you're that connection with the audience you're yeah you need to kind of remind people you're there the whole time just keep performing how do you incorporate your Judaism into your work schedule well I mean obviously I don't work on shops no. and, and you know synagogue shawl is all you know times all worked into that I went to Australia, of course, and, and flying because I've crossed the dateline. So I left, I think, on a Thursday morning at 9 a.m., and I arrived in America at 7 a.m. I was able to get a shakwis twice. <laughs> That's quite good. Do you get extra points for that one? <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Ashley, just once again, the 24th, 25th of June sold out here. Sold out here. Then, you, exactly. then you're moving on yep. to the Arts Depot, yep. and hopefully you'll get some more tickets there. Well, I'm sure you will you seem to be selling out all over everybody seems yeah. to like you and, and obviously they like this show the show is called profit sharing and it's with Imran Yusuf and Ashley Blaker Ashley thank you very much for coming and talking to us nice today to and good luck I with everything stalking me soon. stalking you on the street you're listening to the Jewish views in association with JW3 now I think it's fair to say that there have been rather a great number of great British Jews but there is a new exhibition on at the Jewish Museum which plans to celebrate exactly the kind of contribution that great British Jews have made to our great country. <laughs> the person who is here to tell us all about it now is Jemima Jarman, who is the curator behind said exhibition at the Jewish Museum. Uh, Jemima, first and foremost, welcome to the Jewish Views. And I suppose we have to start with what constitutes a great British Jew. Mm-hmm. How did you decide that someone was a great British Jew? Good question. Um, Thank you. I, I try. Me. You do. <laughs> it shows. We've been very generous with our terms. I'm going to start off by saying this is maybe one of the first exhibitions that actually starts with a bit of a disclaimer on the wall. If you come and visit, spot it. It's in smaller font, but it's there. Everything's a little bit tongue in cheek. Uh, we like to have a sense of humour at the Jewish Museum. For both what constitutes 
someone that is Jewish and someone that is British. So the, the way we have defined both of those terms, because of course, the majority of British Jews now are, and in the past have been immigrants, first generation, second generation. So we'll have, you know, Polish Jews or Canadian Jews in the exhibition as great British Jews because if they came here and contributed to our society then they count so um, just to clarify they don't necessarily have to hold a British passport exactly. they have to have made a contribution yes. to British society whether or not the government would say that they are great British Jews is ir- irrelevant here <laughs> I see okay so this is the governing body of Jewish Museum Very yes good. yeah okay so give us a kind of example of what sort of greatness we're talking about mm. here because As far as the Jewish community is concerned, I think it's fair to say that the contributions to society are pro rata, absolutely ridiculous compared to most other minorities. Mm -hmm. So they've got a lot of choice. Yeah, absolutely. So how did you whittle it down? What have you gone for? That was definitely the main challenge. It wasn't trying to you know racking our heads trying to find what have what has been contributed. It's the other other way round. This exhibition came out of a bigger project that the museum's been doing for a couple of years called the Jewish Lives Project. And at the moment, there's around 2,000 lives featured in this project. And that's what I was pulling from. For those who don't know it, Mm -hmm. what is Jewish Lives Project? Yes, so the Jewish Lives Project is kind of on a bigger scale what the exhibition is doing. It's creating a resource, kind of a a reference resource, really, a biographical resource of uh, great British Jews across six themes. So there are six books that have come out of this. And the themes are, if I can remember them all, (laughs) arts, commerce, public service, science, sport and thought. Well remembered. Excellent. So out of those, are are we talking about sorry, a a chronicle, if you will, that you you, in essence, that what you've done is you've put volumes together based on those themes. And Mm -hmm. within that, the the 2000 are encompassed. Yes, pretty much. And Um, so from that this exhibition was born absolutely yes and then how does it compare then so you've got the the chronicles if you Mm -hmm. will the 2000 i'm guessing there's not necessarily 2000 individuals who are in the exhibition no although that was an idea oh really oh wow (laughs) it was one that i thought "Mm -hmm." well you were the you were the curator you are the curator so technically speaking you you could have done that if you wanted to but i'm guessing that would have been quite a challenge yes so why not tell us about some of the people who are featured who are featured of course well one of the interesting things about doing this exhibition is that I was constantly learning about the the history behind certain iconic objects or inventions or high street shops things that people didn't know had links to a Jewish person and I think that's been the key learning thing for me but also for our visitors like oh I didn't know they were Jewish you know it sounds a bit tripe but it's actually interesting I think for us to like reevaluate, but um, don't you always find that that's the best kind of reaction to yeah. have? Because if someone is known for being Jewish, that's not necessarily a good thing. It's great potentially for the reputation of the community, mm. but I always find it, and this is me speaking very personally here, I find it very frustrating when someone is described. You only have to look on certain websites as a Jewish comedian, yeah. described as a Jewish scientist, yeah. described as a Jewish broadcaster. What does it matter? Yeah, absolutely. It's kind so, of like when you say a female artist or a female comedian, you know, they're just a comedian. It's yes. when you add this kind of yeah, it's, it's a label, it's label a pigeonhole, onto it, isn't at, it? The, at the start. Yeah. So that's potentially the best kind of reaction to have is if someone says, oh, I didn't know they were yes. Jewish. So that's just probably just a bonus. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the, the people in this exhibition, one of my favourites, I'm from the seaside so fish and chips have a very close <laughs> place in my heart the inventor Probably got an even closer place in the stomach to be yeah. <laughs> the inventor of fish and chips was a man called joseph malin from the east end and so i had great delight in in making that one of the exhibits we've got a, a kind of prop made fake plate of fish and chips up uh, now that's disappointing i thought you were going to say that you serve fresh fish and chips every day with the oh, exhibition it's too dangerous <laughs> the well, public <laughs> wouldn't ever have a look in they'd be gone before the doors opened <laughs> fish and chip breakfast and how does the actual exhibition manifest itself let's just say that i've just turned up at the jewish museum what am i going to see and how am i going to witness these great british jews sure as you come in on our on our ground floor, it's in our welcome gallery, and it's floor to ceiling, kind of a bespoke made 
shelving unit also that make, almost it makes it sound a bit boring saying shelving unit but it's kind of all these different size cubby holes on the wall or wrapping around the gallery space and quite unusually for a museum everything's on open display so everything is attached into these cubby holes or onto the wall directly but it's not covered so they need dusting at the end of the day (laughs) where do the artifacts actually come from yeah, that was another thing that makes this exhibition really different. We were finding representative objects to, say, Tesco, which was established by Jack Cohen. We found... Did you know whether or not there is any link between his wife, Tessie Cohen, and the mm, actual name? Is that myth yeah, cleared up? I think it's a myth. It's our, Even our volunteers at the Jewish Museum are, are saying to me, you know, no, actually, it's all about his wife's name, but it's it's not. It's between him and his business partner, which was T.E. Stockwell. So it's T.E. Stockwell and Cohen. That's that's what makes Tesco. But we found those vintage bags on eBay, which is, I think, maybe a, a different way to find objects for your exhibitions. It was mainly going out with a kind of strict list and agenda and looking for um, vintage things on Ebays and auctions that I'm we I'm guessing could get. you paid more than five pence for the bags as well. More than five pence, but not too much more. You know, you can get a lot of um, loving old tat that's actually quite precious. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Um, so give us some other examples of tat that we're going to see yeah, there. I know. I, I should stop calling my exhibition tat, but I, uh, hard but to break I don't out. feel bad now if you call it that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exciting, touchy-feely tat. So we've got an old shell petrol can which I love yellow is my favorite color it's just this beautiful bright yellow there'll be people crying out why why have you got a shell why petrol shell can? why of all things because again a uh, shell was actually established by a man who started out actually as a seashell collector and seller so that's why the name shell came to the petrol company because I think he would like travel to China and collect the seashells to then sell to you know the Victorians who loved them and painted seashells were all a big collection and while he was doing that he was like why am I you know there's money in this this new petrol thing and he started transporting it but kept the that's why it's got the shell logo and the shell name we got M&S in the exhibition of course like commerce was quite easy and fun to display because their products and their easy to get but other things are harder to represent like um public service is one of the themes and that's judges lawyers philanthropists kind of people that have contributed in a non-tangible way so that was a bit of a challenge well if people want to come and actually see the exhibition for themselves when is it running until well excitingly it's actually just been extended and it's going to run throughout the summer into the autumn but even if you've already seen it or you you come and see it and it's still there when you come back, the likelihood is that something would have changed because we're periodically refreshing the displays. Like I said, it's in this kind of cubbyhole format, open display. So we're going to just simply take things out and and put new exhibits in. And we just did that this week with a a Belisha beacon that I made. Well, there you go. If if that isn't enough of a reason, I don't know what is. (laughs) But uh, Jemima Jarman, thank you very much indeed for for taking the time to tell us about it here on The Jewish Views. And I hope to see you in the Jewish Museum. Absolutely. All right. (laughs) You're listening to Jewish Views in association with JW3. Judy Jackson is a well-known writer, mostly books about cooking and wonderful food, and she's also been a guest on this programme in the past. And I'm delighted to say that she's here today because she has written the most marvellous book about two people. The book is also written by Monica Sears and it's called Episodes and is all absolutely explained. It's a book about two girls, two lives, one time. Judy, I have the great good fortune, having read the book, which, quite honestly, I would not put down. I finished it in one sitting. It's marvellous. Tell me, please, for those who don't know about episodes, how it all began. It began when I was a little girl. The book is written by two authors who are elderly and they're writing in the voices of small children and they're writing everything they remember from a really young age, from two or three, they're writing down what they remember. But the interesting thing is that this is a double memoir and 
It's the greatest imbalance you can imagine because the two stories are so different. Because Monica Sears came from Warsaw and you came from London. Yes, I was, I was born in London and a year or so after I was born, two and a half, three, my family was going through the blitz and the bombing and the blackout and everything that was hitting London from the Germans. But as a child, I didn't understand what was going on and to some extent it was exciting for little children. But Monica's story is so totally different because from the age of three she had been told to keep silent, to keep her eyes down, never to look up if, if there's a soldier, to be entirely obedient at any time. And that for a child of three is quite extraordinary. How did you meet? We met when we were 11 and we were just beginning our next school and we were standing on the steps of the school and I was actually the shy one. Monica was the confident one. And we sort of liked each other from the word go. We stayed very close friends. But it was only when we were 17 that she started to reveal to me what had happened to her in Nazi-occupied Poland. So, in fact, when you first met her, you, you had no idea that she was a Polish refugee. None at all. In fact, there was a girl in our class who was Polish. And I said to Monica, you should be friends with her. She's Polish. And Monica just looked at me and said, no, thank you. And that was the end of the conversation. And I never pushed it. And because I knew so little about what had happened in Poland during the war, you know, I was a child of 11 in London, and I don't think parents at that time told their children the horrors that we now know. It took a long time for it to come out. Although you were a Jewish girl being brought up in, in London, you still were shielded from the, the story of why the war was going on. Certainly, certainly during the war, there were hints that people did know what was going on, but we in London didn't. And my parents and people around, their greatest fear was that we were going to be invaded by the Germans. It was on the cards. All the other close European countries had all been invaded and we were probably going to be next. And for parents, this must have been an immense worry. But for me and my brother, we were running into an air raid shelter. We were sleeping on bunks. It was like a picnic. And that sounds terrible, but that's how it seemed for me. And the interesting thing about the book is that for somebody reading it, many people will know a lot more than these two little girls were seeming to know, whereas others will know nothing at all. And so it's going to be a su surprise for many readers. And I don't want to give too much away, but how does, how does Monica get away from Warsaw? How does she find herself in England? Well, I think we have to go back a little bit. Monica's father, her real father, was killed very early on in the war. And her mother took Monica as a baby from Łódź, where, where she was born, to Warsaw. And they were in the Warsaw Ghetto. And her mother, in her 20s, realized that the most important thing was to get out. So the first getting out was to get out of the Warsaw Ghetto. And she did this by bribing and getting a false passport and false papers and getting out of the Warsaw Ghetto and living in the country. Her next job was to find somebody, a Polish peasant girl, who looked after Monica while her mother went to work. And going to work involved being out for days or weeks at a time. So Monica was shunted between the Polish peasant girl and her own mother. But it was worse than this because her mother never even told her that she was her mother. She said, you have to call me auntie because she was so worried about the connection because Monica looked very Jewish because she had very dark eyes and brown hair, whereas her mother had made her hair blonde and could pass off as a non-Jewish person. But as a child, she was a danger. So she had to pretend that that was her auntie. And the relationship between the two women continued for some time. 
And it ended when the war finished. Monica, her mother, and the Polish peasant woman are on a station platform. And the train is coming and is going to leave. And both women were pulling this little girl and saying, she's mine, she's mine. And there was this terrible scene where her mother took her to London and the Polish girl woman was crying. And when Monica got to London, her first thought at the age of about seven was the wrong auntie one. Oh, it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary and heart-touching heart story altogether. What put the idea into your head to write episodes as though it were in those days when you first met? I think I've been talking to Monica since we were 11 and we're now coming up to 80. And we have talked and talked about everything imaginable. But very often she's told me details about the war which I found so hard to imagine. The, perhaps the greatest one which only came out recently was Monica and her mother were on a train and they were going somewhere, they didn't know where. And the train was full of people standing, very few sitting down. It was absolutely packed. And Monica looks at her mother, who is going to the guard and giving him a watch and some gold pieces. She didn't know what was going on. A few minutes later, the train starts slowing down and the doors open. And Monica and her mother are being pushed towards the door. And then her mother throws her out of the train onto the grass. The train continues for a little while, then comes to a stop, and her mother leaps out and runs and lies on top of Monica, the shooting all around, and then the train leaves. It was only later that Monica knew that that train was on its way to Treblinka. And somehow Monica's mother didn't know the destination or the name, but she knew it was unsafe and that they had to get off the train. And it was stories like that that Monica told me over the years that made me think it needs to be told. But the interesting thing was that Monica had already written her story. She wrote it for her first grandchild. She wrote it in the form of a letter to a little boy. And it was just about the first part of this book, which was about the wartime. And this book has been published. It's been translated into Italian. But I suddenly met Monica a couple of years ago and I was in Chile where she lives and I suddenly said to her, how would you feel about writing a comparative story, my story and your story? She wasn't impressed, actually. <laughs> and that was the result of episodes? Well, after a while, she was won over and when she started reading my story, which she'd never heard before, She'd never heard any of the things that had happened to me, even though, of course, they don't bear any real comparison. But to a little girl, they were heartbreaking, embarrassing, difficult. When she read all that, she said, why not? We'll put the two little girls' stories together. And that's what's happened. And it is the most marvellous book. In fact, I'll be honest, I've read it twice now because it is really a marvellous story. And it's published by... Marsons. It's available on Amazon. On Amazon? Yes. Right. And it's called episode Two Girls, Two Lives, One Time by Judy Jackson and Monica Sears. Judy, thank you very much indeed for an absolutely wonderful story. Thank you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, it's always an auspicious moment when a community celebrates a landmark birthday, and that's exactly what the Liberal Synagogue in Elstree are on the cusp of doing 50 years, to be precise. They are about to celebrate, and I'm very pleased to say that now, on this month's podcast, we are joined by one of the co-founding members of the Liberal Synagogue in Elstree and Boreham Wood, and that is Terry Benson. Terry, welcome to the Jewish Views. An exciting moment for the synagogue, isn't it? Absolutely. Tell yeah. us a little bit about the history of the synagogue. How did it start, and has it always been in the same location, actually? No. We started off uh, the, the ULPS, Union of Liberal and Progressive Synagogues, 
the precursor of liberal Judaism, decided in 1969 to investigate whether they could found a community in Stanmore. The previous communities in Wembley and Hendon and Finchley and Southgate were not in the Stanmore Edgware area. So in that case, how did it make the jump from Stanmore Edgware to Elstree then in Boreham Wood? Well, after we we started off using a a hall in Stanmore Broadway. Was it the Bernays Hall, was it? No, it was next to the Bernays. So it was a grandly named place called Glebe Hall, which is actually a scout hut, but a bit like a TARDIS. It was much bigger inside. We were there for several years, but it became increasingly apparent that most of our new members came from the Hartsmere area, which is Bournewood, Elstree, Bushy, Radlett, and so on. And it was also quite expensive to find anywhere in Stanmore. At that time, Bournewood and Elstree was a substantially cheaper area than Stanmore. That's not the case now. Not anymore. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> you, you obviously uh, struck at the right time then as far as property is concerned. So this was about 1974, 75. We'd started off in 69. We started to look for places in the Bournewood area. We had two or three applications turned down in one in particular was as a result of a a member of the Hartsmere planning committee objecting strongly to us who was a member of the united synagogue from that arose we had some large headlines in the local paper berating this the fact that jews were objecting to jews We've actually, I think we've got that same situation now in Stanmore because the Mosaic community have just bought the site of the BP garage on Stanmore yeah, Hill. Yeah. And I believe they've got planning permission to build the synagogue there and I now think there are a load of objections about it. So history only repeats itself. Absolutely. So. Now, as far as every great synagogue is concerned, it normally needs a great rabbi. Well, we know at the moment it's Rabbi Pete Tobias, but I'm guessing that based on he must have been a mere nipper when the community started. Yes, we had a series of student rabbis which came to us for a year at a time in fact our first student rabbi was rabbi alan mann who was worked partly at the liberal jewish synagogue and they sort of lent him to us but over our first proper rabbi was rabbi thomas salomon who's been at the westminster synagogue he was with us for about 12 years or so that was followed by Rabbi Jonathan Black, who was with us until about 2003 when Pete Tobias joined us. Going back to the building, the search for the building took place particularly in the mid-70s as a result of the situation that I just mentioned about the publicity. The Hartsmere Planning Committee became rather embarrassed by this and they hinted to us, to me actually, I was the building chairman at the time, about the former school in Elstree, which is the Church of England school, that had been derelict for some years. And as a result of this, they dropped the Diocese of St Albans, who owned it, dropped the price from 50,000 to 23, at which sort of level we could just about afford it even with a mortgage. You'd want to pay uh, that this day, wouldn't you? No, no, no it's a good buy. Yeah. <laughs> Made a fair old profit there. <laughs> what, what makes Liberal Synagogue Elstree the Liberal Synagogue Elstree? What would you say is unique about it and how would you describe it to anyone on the outside looking in and saying, I wonder if that's the synagogue for me? Not that I'm actually trying to sell it to them, but I just out of curiosity, what would you say is its characteristics? Being liberal, I suppose. <laughs> Narrow it down. There must be something. No, well, we're more they, welcoming no, you... to mixed couples, particularly where the husband is Jewish and the wife isn't. We recognise anybody's Jewish who's been brought up in the Jewish environment. So, providing the children of a Jewish father has been brought up in the religion school and so on, we treat them as Jewish, which both the Reform and obviously in orthodox syndicals do not well that's very much obviously liberal values and I, I think we all know that but what what i suppose i'm guessing at more is what is it about liberal synagogue elstree that means that you've never been tempted to go to any other synagogue why is it you like it so much and how would you how would you put it to others that that they could learn to love it as well based on what you know i like it as much because of the 
the friends I built up, the social environment that we that arose, particularly because we built this building. As I said, it was it was completely vandalised, and we're unusual in that it was the building committee, a team of grouped about 40 volunteers, spent three years every Sunday refurbishing this building. In fact, so it was actual members themselves who were refurbishing yes. it. Who actually vandalised it? Or did you never find out? Well, it had been empty for several years. They'd built a new school at the back, behind the church, and the building had been empty. And when we got it, there were all the windows. It was a, by the way, it's a listed grade two building, built it's in- It's a very smart building. 1884, it looks quite nice. Takes a lot of looking after. So to anyone who is unclear about where we refer to, it, it's at the top of Elstree Hill North, isn't it? Yes. Is that, that almost yes. Tudor-esque looking building? Yes. And just to make it absolutely clear, because I don't want anyone to sort of be concerned about sort of the safety of it, it, it the vandalism took place before oh, yes. the synagogue yes, owned yes. it, wasn't it? Yes, because it had been left empty. There wasn't a window that wasn't broken, complete mess inside. Being an old building, it was all lath and plaster, so it's made it very difficult for us to repair and so on. We did all the draining, we put the toilets in, rewired it, put the heating in, reglazed it, etc. Goodness. Well, you say well, we've had it enough practice, I suppose. Gosh. We built the pyramids, so we should be quite clued up on. <laughs> the I pyramids didn't have great plumbing, by the so. way, but the, the building does. But there weren't any builders amongst us. We were just mathematicians and pharmacists and accountants. But you just got your head down and did it. Yes, you yes. You got your hands dirty, so to speak. You know? And as a result, there's a lot yeah. of uh, companionship. And well, I was going to say, if there isn't community building quite literally there and then, that's, that's amazing. Yes. And are there any of the founding, apart from yourself, are there many more of the founding members still there involved? Uh, about 20, I suppose. How are you all celebrating the 50th anniversary? Carefully, being so old. <laughs> 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 yeah, give us an example of what the synagogue is laying on as a result. Uh, we had a civic service attended by the various mayors and the Lord Lieutenant of Harvardshire and so on. Uh, later on this year, we're having a, founder, a founder's service for us that are still left and there's various activities throughout the year absolutely we'll get out the bunting and celebrate we'll muzzle it off to everyone at Borehamwood and Elstree Liberal because it really is a, a fantastic achievement which you'd never take for granted that synagogues stay in the same place for a very long time but that one certainly has and long may it continue just finally I think that it's worth mentioning. I hope he won't mind. I don't believe he will do because he's been on this program before. Rabbi Peter Tobias is uh, not feeling too peaky at the moment, is he? So, of course, we wish him a very speedy recovery. Thank you. He's done himself a mischief, hasn't he? Yes, at the airport. At the airport? Oh, dear. In Los Angeles, he was coming back. Oh, dear. Well, well, at least he is uh, hopefully back in the UK and hopefully recovering well. Yes, he's just had an operation, Badly damaged his knee and ligaments and Ooh, so on. So crumbs. Are you, giving, are you giving the sermons in the interim? No, no, it's not, one, <laughs> not my bag. <laughs> I wish him well from us. Yeah, thank absolutely. you very much. Everyone at the Jewish Views wishes him a speedy recovery. And as I say, we wish everyone at Elstree and Borenwood Liberal Mazel Tov. Thank you very much indeed. Terry Benson, one of the founding members of Elstree and Borenwood Liberal Synagogue. Thank you very much indeed for joining us on thank the Jewish Views. Thank you very views. much. Now for the Rabbinic Thought for the Month from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Before I entered rabbi school, I worked for five years with British Steel. I can attest to the awesome nature of the processes. Fireworks produced when a hot slab of iron met its first rollers to turn it into steel. The industrial artistry of the plants, being part of the community even though my uniform was a suit, not the overalls of the real workers. It was exotic. We supplied Japanese car manufacturers and I got to travel to Japan, Turkey, Spain, the northeast of England, to Derby and the metal presses of the West Midlands. I went to British Steel because my socialist great-aunt Beryl romanticised for me the foundational nature of industry, a cornerstone of the economy. It felt biblical, eternal. British Steel Limited, based in Scunthorpe, is on the brink of collapse. Not the part I knew in South Wales, but that, I fear, will inevitably not be so far behind. My experience in British Steel was a gift. I would not have met and been exposed to the beauty and the plight of the legacy of great British industrialisation. 
a generation back, Dad could tell you about growing up in industrial Birmingham. But forward a generation, and few of us have an inkling of the narrative of these regions. They are not tourist destinations, and are distanced from the mindset of communities reliant on the fortunes of industry. We may not live in such regions, but their well-being is a social justice that we should all be interested in. The ancient Israelite prophet Amos railed against his society with the words, because they have sold for silver those whose cause was just and the needy for a pair of sandals. More locally in my synagogue, we are beginning to answer another social injustice, that of child food poverty. In the UK, over 10% of our children, in Europe the average is 4%, live with severe food poverty. In other words, going hungry and experiencing adverse health outcomes. In schools where the majority of pupils are entitled to receive free school meals, teachers are reporting that they are regularly observing hungry children, filling their pockets with any leftovers they can find so that they have something to eat for their evening meal. Outside term times, holiday hunger is now widespread. So that's why we're trying to help end hungry holidays, a programme of providing meals and activities for children at a local primary school, where about 75% receive free school meals in term time, and nothing in holidays. This is social action work that we intend to convert to social justice, by drawing attention to this situation to local and national authorities. Amos states that the Torah's message that being God-fearing necessarily means rising to the highest levels of morality and responsibility for social justice. May we heed this call for a society that needs to steel itself to consider off-forgotten parts of the country and children who fall below the radar. Our response for and with them is a measure of our health and true wealth. Thank you very much to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein of Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our rabbinic thought for the month. And that's it for this edition of The Jewish Views. Thank you to all of our guests, to Ashley Blaker, Judy Jackson, Jemima Jarman, and of course to Terry Benson. And we must also remember to thank our producer, Sue Greenberg, and of course you at home for listening. Don't forget you can always listen to this episode or indeed any previous episode of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with JW3. But from me, Phil Dave. Me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Clive Roslin. Do join us again next month here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye. <laughs>